You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2, We'll be looking at verses 17 through 24. At least that's what we're going to read. We're really going to focus in on more verses uh, 17 to 20. Uh, but uh, we're going to read together verse chapter 2, verses 17 to 24. I don't know what really could be worse. Um, there can't be anything worse, really, than for one to be so sure that they know God, that they are completely 100% positive that they are heaven-bound, at least as much as they can be. And sure, because of their religiosity, uh, because of whatever religious ritual, baptism, christening, whatever it might be, other religious rituals, uh, because of their good works, because they pray, they go to church. Maybe they, they even have a significant role in the church. Maybe they're a deacon. Maybe they're a ministry coordinator. Maybe they're an elder. And they're so confident in their religiosity that that will get them to heaven. They're so confident that when it comes time that they are even on their deathbed, they express to their loved ones that they're ready. They're not afraid to die. They're confident. They know, they are sure that they will be with God. Only to then close their eyes in death. To in the next instance, know the realities of the eternal torments of hell. On one preaching occasion, R.C. Sproul said that the odds were astronomical, that there were many people in that very room in which he was preaching who were still under the curse of God. Those that would know the wrath of God if they were to die that day. He said they were those who had not yet fled to the cross, who were still counting on this nebulous idea, the unconditional love of God, to get them through. Or even worse, thinking they can get into the kingdom of God through their good works, through their service. And they don't understand unless you perfectly obey the law of God, which R.C. said you have not done for five minutes since you were born. So they don't understand that if you have not kept the law of God, you are under the curse of God. Dr. Sproul said, here's the reality we need to make clear to our people, that they will either bear the curse of God themselves, or they will flee to the one who took it for them. And so let me start off by asking you, will you yourself bear the curse of God under his wrath for eternity? Or will you flee to Christ and find that he has borne that curse for you? Flee to Christ, trust in him, because only Christ saves. 
And Dr. Sproul was right. We must make this clear. But how do we make it clear? Is it enough that we just live our lives? Uh, we just live our lives before people, and, and they're going to understand that there's, there's a difference in our lives and why. Or do we have to say something? We're told to preach the gospel, to share the gospel. Clearly that implies we must speak, we must use our words. Or, but even then, what do we say? Is it enough just to share the truth? Or do we have to point out what's false? Can we just share what is true and let people be discerning? Is that enough? There are those who would say, no, there, there's no need to point out what is false. There's no need to point out what is untrue. No, no need to tell people what the problems are. Just, just speak the truth. Just tell them about God's love and Christ's death. Just, just tell them what's true. Is that really the case, though? Because there are a lot of problems out there. There is a lot that is false. There are many people, prayerfully none that are here today, but can we ever be 100% sure? Who may give verbal confession and head nods when they, they hear the gospel spoken to them, all the while they're really holding on to what is actually a false hope. And they don't take the time or they're unwilling to really examine what they're putting their hope in, as opposed to the gospel that they nod to or acknowledge when they're confronted with. Why would we not point out what is false? The only reason would be to avoid controversy. It's the only reason to not confront error. And R.C. Sproul said, I would argue it's exactly right. He said to avoid controversy is to avoid Christ. We can have peace, but it is servile and carnal peace where the truth is slain in the streets. We have to understand the urgency in getting across what is true and that people would, would discern and recognize what is false. There's urgency to this because those with a false hope will close their eyes in death to awaken to the realities of hell. And then it is too late. I say all this because I think what we see here, what we've been seeing, and what becomes all the more plain is that Paul confronts the false. See, he doesn't just proclaim what is true. He points out what is false. He points out what is a false hope. He makes it clear. We see that throughout Scripture. I think today we'll, we'll look at a few examples of Jesus doing that as well. We have to understand the urgency and the importance. And so we look at that here this morning. We continue to look at that and, and will continue as we go through Romans. And as we've been working through Romans, Paul has been showing how his thesis statement it's true how the, the gospel is the power of God and the salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And it's the power of God unto salvation because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it says in Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. 
He's been showing this as he makes it very clear that presently, in Paul's present time as he was writing, but also too in our present time, as we can clearly see as we look at the world around us, that presently God's wrath was revealed against all of mankind's unrighteousness and wickedness. And Paul shows how it's revealed in in God turning mankind over, consigning them to the enslavement of their sin as the fullness of their depravity is allowed to run full-blown into its outworking. And with this, Paul begins to show the depravity of first the Gentiles. He shows them in their sin and their lack of righteousness and therefore condemned before a holy God. And then as we began chapter 2, we saw Paul begin to transition from showing the unrighteousness of the Gentiles to coming to show the unrighteousness of the Jews. And, and as you see that transition begin there in chapter 2, he starts off by addressing both Jews and Gentiles. As he begins with those who are, again, either Jew or Gentile, but those who are a moralist. Uh, those who would look down on those who practice the things that Paul mentions there in chapter 1. And so these moralists are those who would see themselves as morally superior and would judge those as bankrupt, morally bankrupt, that practice those things. But Paul makes it very clear that the moralist is actually just as morally bankrupt as those that they claim are morally bankrupt. And then Paul covered how when each one stands before God, God will judge each one based on their works. For God shows no partiality. And then as we covered last time, Paul shows how God shows no partiality and that those Gentiles who sin without the law but show the work of the law, the, the knowledge of right and wrong written on their hearts, that they will be judged without the law. They'll perish without the law. And those Jews who sin with the law, they'll be judged by the law. And so all will be brought into judgment. As we read there in verse 16, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so then, with verse 16, Paul completes the transition. And now as we begin and pick it up here in verse 17, we see Paul has, at this point, fully turned his attention to the Jews. Now what he says here about the Jews clearly is to be taken as not necessarily true about every last Jewish person, but he's speaking in generalities. Uh, For there were those, for instance, in the church, that this did not fit the description of. And there were those, like Paul himself, where these things once did fit the description of them, where they were people with a false hope hope in their self-righteousness, as Paul once was, but, but then they came, by God's grace, to know what true hope really is. And so as we read what Paul is saying here, we should understand that he is speaking in generalities. And he speaks, as will be very clear later on in Romans, as one who has great concern and love for his Jewish brethren that he is speaking about. And so he speaks out of that concern and love. And so with that said, let's read our passage here for this morning. 
Again, Romans chapter 2, and we'll read from verses 17 on through verse 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who harbor idols, do you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, Dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. So as Paul begins to specifically address the Jews, in doing so, he returns to this rhetorical device that he used earlier, where he addresses this imaginary opponent this opponent who would be Jewish, and so represents all of the Jews that would oppose what Paul has been teaching here. And we see this subsection begins, as the English Standard Version translates the conjunction with the word but, and that's, that's a good translation because there is a contrast here. Paul previously point, pointed out that God shows no partiality. But then here, Paul lists the reasons that Jews may look to find cause for God to show them partiality, to show them favor. And so it is as if Paul anticipates an objection from the Jews being considered essentially no different than the Gentiles in the judgment of God, which is what he's been explaining. And so Paul presents a series of conditional statements here that are all presumed to be true. So again, as he, as he says these things, we begin by him saying, if you call yourself a Jew, and, and really I think as we read that it, uh, the, the, the verb is passive, so you are called a Jew. Uh, there, there's a, one translation that says, you have the name Jew thrusted upon you. And so he's looking, he's talking to this imaginary opponent, and he says, you, you call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law, you boast in God, and, and, and the assumed response would be, yes, I am a Jew. Right, yeah, I, <laughs> I do rely on the law. I do boast in God. That's right. And so that's how this, this line of speaking should be understood here. And so we're going to focus on this conditional statement that Paul is, is addressing here. And then we'll touch on what the apotheosis is, the, the what then in the condition. We'll focus on that next time, as that's found in verses 21 to 24. But we see first here, again, they were called Jews. And that was loaded with significance for the Jews, to bear that name. And MacArthur gets into how significant that is, and, and though it's, it's a bit of a long quote, I think it's worth it to really see why it's so significant that they would take pride in the fact that they were called Jews. And so MacArthur says this, 
says the chosen people of God took great pride in the name Jew. In centuries past, they had been referred to as Hebrews, so-called because of the language they spoke. They also had, <clears throat> they also had been called Israelites after the land God had promised and given to them according to his covenant with Abraham. But by the time of Christ, the most common name they had was that of Jew. The term was derived from Judah, the name of one of the tribes, 12 tribes, as well as the name of the southern kingdom after the division following Solomon's death. But during and after the Babylonian captivity, it had come to refer to the whole race that descended from Abraham through Isaac. The name represented both their racial and religious heritage, and in their own minds it denoted their distinctiveness from all other people of the world, despite the bondage and oppression that they had suffered at the hands of Gentiles for hundreds of years and were presently still suffering. They wore the name Jew as a badge of great honor and pride. The name marked them off as the unique and special favored people of God. The root meaning of Judah, and therefore of Jew, is praised. And the Jews of Paul's days considered that to be a well-deserved title and description of them. <clears throat> and MacArthur, he goes on to explain how the Jews had lost sight of their calling by God, the calling that they had as seen in the Abrahamic covenant, that they were to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And he says that the indifference of Jonah, so he's comparing Jonah to the, the, the attitude of all the Jews, the, the indifference that Jonah had in preaching to the Ninevites, remember Jonah didn't want to preach to the Ninevites, because he knew that if he did, they'd repent, and then God would uh, show his grace, but he wanted them to be wiped out by God's wrath. And uh, so again, MacArthur says that the, the, the indifference of Jonah preaching to the Ninevites was typical of many Jews towards the Gentiles. Because they, they were Jews. They weren't like all the nations around them. And so that was significant for them. And, and it may be true, and it is true, that the Jewish nation is made up of God's special people. God's chosen. But would God judge each individual on that basis? Well, Paul has already told us the basis of God's judgment, and it's not nationality. Being of the chosen nation, they, they were showered with privileges, and we talked about those things, and we'll talk about them more later as well. But the question comes down, did they respond to those privileges as those privileges demanded? Uh, so, for instance, they had the special revelation of God. They had God's law given to him. But did they respond to that special revelation as that revelation demanded? Did they respond to the law as the law demanded? No, they, they didn't. So what advantage was there in being a Jew if they did not respond as they should have been, being God's special people? If they did not keep the law? And yet their hope was in being of the Jewish nation, being of the chosen people. They depended on the fact that they were called Jews. But not only having this name thrusted upon them, but because they also then, with that, did possess the law. They trusted in that. Even though Paul made clear in verse 13, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, 
but the doers of the law who will be justified. Yet here in verse 17, Paul says they relied on, or or literally, it should be translated as, they rested on the law. The idea of saying they rested on the law is the fact that they depended on the law. They expected the law to hold them up on the day of judgment. And so the possession of the law, in their thinking, was supposed to shield them from judgment somehow. I mean, God did give his law to them, right? He didn't give it to the Gentiles. He gave it to them. And that can't be insignificant, right? Well, no, it wasn't insignificant, really. It it, it had great significance. But if they're going to rely on the fact that God had given them the law, then the, the logical thought to that should be, well, then we better keep the law. And that's what we're going to depend upon to make us right before God. The problem is, though, the law showed a standard that was too high to keep. No one could keep the law, which really is a main point of the law, to show that you can't keep it, to show that you can't make yourself right before God, that you need someone to be right for you, and you need someone who's going to pay for your not keeping the law. So having the law, they really should have seen their plight before God and their true need, and the law should have led them to to seek out the Savior that God provided for them and their Messiah. But instead, they depended on the law itself. We see in this dependence on the law, it went a few different ways for them. There were rabbis who, in their teaching of the law, they actually lowered the standard of the law so that it was something more accessible. And we actually see Jesus address that in the Sermon on the Mount. When you read Jesus say, you've heard it said, but I tell you. Uh, Jesus is correcting their lowering of the law standard, and he's lifting it up to its proper place, to that place that is beyond any human reach. Also, after Judah returned from Babylonian exile, Traditions grew that were works and laws that were added to God's law. And they were added as a fence around God's law. See, because they understood why they were taken into exile. And so, in order to keep themselves from breaking God's law again and going again into exile, uh, they, they, they added these traditions to God's law that would put a fence around the law so that if they were able to keep these traditions, then they would not break God's law. So, for example, you have the traditions about the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Well, what does it mean to work? And to not work on the Sabbath, well, if I even spit on the ground and stirred up too much dust, well, that was, that was work, and I, I broke the Sabbath. Or if I travel too far, or, and we see too when it comes to Jesus and healing someone on the Sabbath. And all these things were part of their traditions that, again, initially was the idea, well, if we don't break these traditions, then we won't break the Sabbath law. But the problem was, even if these things started out with good intentions, the problem was these things became a means of self-righteousness. As I keep these traditions, and these traditions then even became, uh, started to supersede the law itself. That even keeping these traditions is really what mattered as opposed to keeping the law. And we see Jesus address that in the Gospels. 
For instance, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 8 through 9, Jesus said, You leave the commandments of God, (coughs) excuse me, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. And so we see them working and keeping up these traditions and yet relying on the fact that we are the people that have God's law. And they rested on the law, even though they didn't keep the law. And then the next thing Paul mentions, in which the Jews in his day put their hope in, was their ancestral relationship to God. As Paul says here, they boast in God. And we look at this and say, well, what's what's wrong with boasting in God? And that in of itself, there was nothing wrong. Matter of fact, Israel was supposed to boast in God. We can see that they take pride in God in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 21. We read in the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. It says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. They were supposed to boast in the Lord. So what was the problem in their boasting? They boasted in God without actually knowing God. That was really the problem. They only knew a religiosity that was full of man-made traditions. But they would say, I'm called a Jew. Uh, I'm of the Jewish people. We are God's chosen. We are descendants of Abraham. I grew up being taught the law. I say the Shema every day. I hear the law read in the synagogue every week. And yet in their relying on their ancestral status and their personal heritage, depending on the possession of the law, yet failing to keep the law, all of this show they did not really know God. Yet they put their hope in the fact that they boasted in God. And as we think of all of these things that they were putting their hope in, we should think, really, how different is it than the things that we, we hear ourselves? is not any different than the person who relies on their religious heritage and upbringing, or even their current status. But when you share the gospel with someone, you ask, hey, are, are, you think you'll, you'll go to heaven when you die? Well, well, yeah, I'll go to heaven. I, I, I'm a Roman Catholic. I'll, I'll go to heaven. I'm Baptist. I'm Methodist. Presbyterian. Name it. Whatever someone may say. I grew up going to church. I grew up in a Christian home. Oh, I asked Jesus into my heart when I was whatever age, and I was baptized. When an altar call was given at church, I raised my hand. I walked down the aisle. I signed that card. Or someone may even say, of course, I love God. I love God my whole life. Which begs the question, what God have you loved your whole life? Is the God of 
that matches your own opinions and feelings and upbringings, or it's the God that has revealed himself to you through his word? What God have you always loved? Yet we have these professions of of one's religious heritage and, and one's upbringing and one's practices. And yet these professions of of some sort of faith are accompanied with without any understanding of the true gospel with no evidence of true saving faith and no fruit of repentance and so no changed heart that hates their sin and loves the lord that wants to please him not to earn anything from him but wants to please him out of such love and gratitude because christ has already earned everything for us and we recognize his lordship All such boasting and things about oneself and one's own religiosity and upbringing, all of those things are false hopes and really meaningless self-righteousness. And no less so than the the things that Paul was saying about the Jews here and what they were putting their hope in. Being called a Jew, resting in the law, boasting in God. It was really self-righteousness and looking to something about oneself. None of that would exempt them from judgment before God. And, and none of the things that any one of us could, could look to about ourselves will exempt any of us from judgment before God. Because why? God shows no partiality. He's still going to say, you did not uphold my standard. And by that, he will judge each one. Anything else is a false hope. Now again, remember, Paul was stating a conditional statement here. And it's a condition that's assumed to be true. And so for the, this imaginary opponent, who again represents all the Jews that would disagree with what Paul has been teaching so far, saying that, that really the Jews are on, on level ground before the judgment bar of God, the same ground that the Gentiles stand on. As he's pointing out all the things that they would hope in that that God would excuse them. And he's setting up this condition knowing full well firsthand that this is what they would argue because it's what he himself would have one day argued before he was saved. And so he continues in this conditional statement in verse 18. And we see here that the next thing to put hope in would be the fact that they knew God's will. As God's elected people, having his special revelation, they they knew his will. They they knew his moral will in the law. Uh, They knew his ceremonial will and how God determined people should approach him in worship with the sacrificial system and all the religious rites. And then two in verse 18, Paul says, not only do you know God's will, but you also approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. They knew this about themselves. Knowing God's law, knowing his will, uh, they knew what was excellent, or you could translate that as what was superior. Uh, They knew what had value as opposed to something that only seemed good, but was really worthless. They knew this as they had God's special revelation. As they had been taught God's special revelation, been taught his law, trained in it. They knew it inside and out. 
And so having all of this that revealed all of this truth to them, all of these things were really great advantages for them. Uh, These things were blessings by God's grace to them. And they were genuine blessings. But they were blessings that were supposed to lead them to what would really give them hope, as opposed to them putting their hope in those things themselves. And not only did the Jews self-righteously put their hope in those blessings, but having those blessings, they then saw themselves in a privileged position as a source of knowledge and truth to teach others. And so we see that, that privilege that they saw themselves in there in verses 19 to 20. And really, there, there's truth to that in having these privileges, that having God's truth, it's only natural then that we should share God's truth with others, right? And they were to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And so there's, there's not no truth in the fact that they would be in a privileged position to share the truth with others as they possess the truth. But again, they were putting their hope in that. We see one thing they saw themselves as being was being a guide to the blind, the spiritually blind. Those who were ignorant of of truth and of God. How did Jesus think about the fact that they thought they were guides to the blind? Well, when the disciples come to Jesus and tell Jesus how the Pharisees were offended by what Jesus said about what really defiles a person, Jesus responded this way in Matthew chapter 15, verse 14. He said, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. What kind of guides are they? In chapter 23 of Matthew, verses 24 to 26, Jesus said, You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Clearly, Jesus did not think that these guides would lead anyone anywhere good because they could not see themselves. But they had all the knowledge they needed, right? And and that's what I need. I have this knowledge. Look, Look at all that I know about God and God's word and his law. They possessed these things, but how did these things really affect their lives? You know, we can be the same way, right? We, we can boast in our knowledge and all the Bible verses that we have memorized and the depths of understanding that we have of Scripture to be able to explain the meaning of Scripture to other people. We can be so full of Scripture knowledge that it only be reasonable for us to think that we should be able to teach others. But what good is that knowledge if it never leaves our head and never affects our hearts? If it never shows us who we truly are before God because it never gives us the true understanding of God himself. We have all this knowledge about God's holiness and his righteous standard, but yet we don't live as if God is righteous and holy. And we don't see ourselves in view of that righteousness to identify ourselves as not being so righteous and holy. 
but we're very self-righteous and full of pride and arrogance. We take pride in all the knowledge that we have. Well, if that's the truth, then we should not think ourselves to be teachers of anyone else. And this was the issue for the Jews. With all that they had and all of their training for all of their lives, all that they knew of God's law, they were blind guides. They shouldn't think themselves teachers of anyone or guides of anybody. And yet they weren't only convinced that they were guides of people, they were also convinced that they were light to those in darkness. The idea of being in darkness referred to the Gentiles without the law. So when a Gentile was proselytized and so converted to Judaism, it was thought that they went from darkness to light. But when they were converted, you have to ask, what were they really converted to? What kind of Judaism were they converted to? Clearly, it would have been the same kind of Judaism that those who shared with them practiced themselves. If it was a Judaism of false hope that looked to oneself, then that person would follow that same false hope. Actually, again, Jesus had comments to make about such proselytizing that which was practiced by the scribes and Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 15, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Ouch! Man, talk about not just preaching the truth, but pointing out the problem. And again, we should be careful ourselves here too. As we talk about this, we should examine our own evangelism and our own functioning as a church. We should ask, what kind of Christianity are we attracting people to? Is it a, a Christianity of our own religiosity, of our own community, our own service? And so really, we're really just attracting people to ourselves. Or does our evangelism really point people to trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? To obey him out of love for him and gratitude, to know him as their Lord? But we see these privileges that the Jews counted for themselves and put much pride in and put their hope in. And we see this continues here in verse 20 as they saw themselves as instructors of the foolish. It was foolish Gentiles who were without the law. The Jews saw themselves as those who should correct those Gentiles. They also saw themselves as teachers of children. And yes, it could be of, of young Jews that were in their home. Uh, but this is re specifically referring to those who are immature and so it would consist of those Gentiles who were new converts to Judaism. They were teachers. Again, why? Why would they be so convinced that they were to be all of these things? Well, look at the end of verse 20. It says, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. 
And that's exactly what they had. They had this embodiment of knowledge and truth. As they had the, the revelation spoken by God, they had his word and his law that was given through Moses. They had objective revelation in the law and so had the embodiment of objective truth. And so really, if they would agree that the Gentiles would be held accountable before God, the truth of the matter is then they would be held all the more accountable before God. As opposed to thinking they should get some kind of pass. So again, Paul is addressing in this, this imaginary opponent, this Jew that represented those Jews who would oppose Paul's teaching, saying, if you say you're called a Jew, and he would say, yeah, I am called a Jew. If you, if you have the law, if you boast in God and all of these things, you have these blessings. If you say you are a guide to the blind, a, a light to those in darkness, a, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, you have these privileges. And they would say, yes, we have all of those privileges. This, this condition is true. And so then Paul then draws his conclusion. Since you say all of these things, verse 21, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? You who say you must keep the law, do you break the law? And again, we're going to focus on these verses next time. But what Paul is getting to here, that with all that they're putting their hope in, with all that they're trusting in, of why they should be right before God, all of this is really just sheer hypocrisy. That's the conclusion Paul draws. They call themselves Jew, that they are the people of God. They have the law. They boast in God. But those things take no effect, at least the proper effect, in their life. The effect it has is it just makes them proud. But the truth is, having all of these blessings and being the people of God, it should have caused them to realize this is not something for me to put my hope in, but should have all caused them to realize this is something that shows me I have no hope within myself. Having all of these things should have led them to understand they actually need not more of these things, but they need grace. They need grace to be saved, not to be proud and of themselves. They should have seen how they fall short of keeping God's law. They should see how they, really, no different than the Gentiles, needed a Savior. They put their hope in all of these privileges and blessings instead of where these blessings should have truly led them. And it resulted in self-righteous hypocrisy. And it can be easy for you and I, as we read through this and we think about this and say, yeah, that, that were those first century Jews. Yeah, that's, that's how they were. Or it could be easy for you and I to think of others who we know that live in self-righteous hypocrisy and say, yep, yeah, you know, they, they, they need a message like that. I wish they could hear this. All the while missing how we are. S. Lewis Johnson said this, how difficult it is for 
humanity to see itself as it really is, especially because of the curse of the fall in Eden. It is just as easy for the evangelical to fall into the trap of spiritual unreality and hypocrisy as it was for the chosen people. Beware. And it's a good warning. You and I need to beware. And see, this is why, as we do preach the truth, in preaching the truth, we need to warn about what's, what's wrong and, and false that's out there. We need to do it lovingly, tactfully, but nonetheless, boldly. Speaking the truth, even pointing out error, because we know how self-deceived we ourselves can be. And we have to be humble enough to recognize that. How many times we've lacked discernment ourselves. And so therefore, in presenting the truth, and even as we point out what's wrong, knowing this about ourselves should keep us humble, and so therefore proceeding in a humble way. Otherwise, again, we we fall into the same trap of hypocrisy. But nonetheless, we should understand the need for correction to be there. The need for the kind of correction that Paul is bringing in our text and will continue to bring as we continue in Romans. Uh, The kind of correction that we even see Jesus bring. We all need correction. We've all lacked discernment. And we need to be told what the plain truth is. And so we need to be ready ourselves to, to share the plain truth. And when it comes to false gospels and false hopes, let us see the seriousness of the matter. That there is only one way of salvation, one hope that is not wishful thinking, <coughs> not wishful thinking, but, but grounded in a guarantee. But there is salvation in nothing else and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. The one you and I must look to because we ourselves have not upheld God's standard. And so we must come to him who has upheld God's standard for us. We must come to him who has paid the price in our place for us not upholding his standard, dying for us and rising again to defeat sin and death. And therefore, we must recognize that it is him who is our true hope, our everlasting hope. And if you will recognize that you have not upheld his standard of righteousness, that that you, instead of being good, have lied and stolen, have been full of lust and and ungratefulness and and full of bitterness and all the other ways that we can name, we have failed to uphold the law. If you will instead trust in Christ alone, you will be saved. You will find that he has paid the price for your sin and his righteousness will be credited to you so that you will have the guarantee of not one day closing your eyes in death, to awaken to the realities of eternal hell. No, but you will be able to be ready and be confident in the day of your deathbed. But not because of anything about you, but because of everything about Christ. 
trusting in Christ, you will know that when you leave this world, you will go to be with him and be with him forever. Him who is your glorious King and Lord. What a great hope that is. What a glorious hope that is. My friends, let us... Oh, it's, it's Christmas. And again, there, there are many opportunities to share the gospel at Christmas with the Christmas songs and that are on the radio and all of these things that we can say, hey, what is that about? What does that mean? And, and, and we can talk about what one's doing for Christmas. And there's just so many opportunities to take what is the, the natural and the regular and swing it into a spiritual conversation to bring it to the gospel. There's a unique opportunity this time of year. We should take advantage of it. And we should be ready to take advantage because there's so many holding on to a false hope when the only hope is in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. Let us share that hope. Let us proclaim the gospel. Let us even be willing to point out what is false for those who are unwilling to discern. And let us proclaim Jesus Christ boldly, for he is the only true hope in the world. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.